Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. So, can open data improve public procurement? Um, let me just, I think I need to, to start with um, a sort of caveat, because in, uh, inevitably any conversation that starts like that sort of works on the premise that public procurement is broken and we need to improve, da, 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 and desperately needs to be improved. I think, um, let me run through the, fir- the, the three basic rules of procurement. One is buy the right stuff. Two, get the best price you can. And then three, don't bulk the market. Make sure you can repeat one and two when you're doing it. Now, actually, in 90% of cases, we do this fine. You know, there, there is tarmac on the roads, there is electricity in our, our buildings, we get heat, we get light, you know, uh, uh, <coughs> doctors have surgical gloves and scalpels and all the things they need. So we, we're, we're pretty good at it, actually. It's just that in a lot of areas, or in some of the more complex areas, we could do better. So having said that, I, I'm going to lead you on to, to this slide, which is a slide that was uh, I, I owe to Clay Johnson from the... Department of Better Technology, a company um, in the US who's done some work on procurement. He's got a great um, YouTube video that he did uh, of a presentation he did at Code for America. Definitely recommend you look at it. And he, he put up this slide, basically, which I've appropriated. And, um, and it, sa- it basically says, the larger the budget, the smaller your appetite for our appetite for risk. However... The larger the budget, the greater the probability of failure is in our procurement. And it's this sort of um, desire to move up the scale to bigness and complexity that actually causes a lot of problems in public procurement. Um, There's another way of putting it, which is you have um, procurements that are complex and procurements that are frequent. So... Only once in your lifetime will you purchase an NHS IT system. And in fact, when it comes to purchasing, purchasing the, the patient record system that failed, what they were trying to do, no one else in the world had ever done before. So there was no reference point. I put it to you that when you're embarked on something that actually no one else has done before, you might want to cut back your ambition and say, well, let's see if we can do a couple of smaller things first to give ourselves an understanding of how it might work. So guess what? This is where the failures occur. It's around that top corner that says, okay, I'm I'm buying something that actually I haven't bought before and it's incredibly complex. So we're very good at buying pens Things like social care get a bit more tenuous. It's really difficult when we get up to the complex and rarely bought things. And that's particularly important because if you think about a procurement professional's career, you know, there might be 20 or 30 years. Once you've signed your your large contract for whatever it is, maybe, maybe a large IT system, that gets delivered or not, Five years later, you're off. You're doing something else. You're never bought back the next time that big procurement comes along and it's time for someone else to learn again. So you end up back with this very quickly. And 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 it's the the aim, I would say, one of the goals that we have to have is to move things to the left of this chart, move things down into the middle, Not, not to make everything routine like buying pens, 
but to move away from the risk areas by careful management of procurement. It's around testing and and proving concepts before you embark on them more more, more, uh, at such a high high level. So this is what not to do. Now, um, this is this was a a story from uh, around uh, 1999 uh, in Portsmouth. They were building the Millennium Tower. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's the, the sort of sail building on the on the uh, Portsmouth Harbour, and um, and there was a deal done with this um, homes developer where they were going to um, put a load of homes and shops and stuff around Gunwharf Quay. It was going to be built around the sail tower, and it was going to be amazing and all the rest of it. Well. The procurement went over and, uh, and the, the shops and restaurants got built three years late or something like that. And the developer said, we were supposed to book this on our, on our profit, on our balance sheet. You're holding it up. We want our money back. And, and, and of course, when, you know, when a problem in procurement ends up in the news, you've got no chance of solving it because it's attritional and, you, you know, it's his fault. No, it's his fault. And... It, it becomes a, a, an absolutely pointless sort of um, uh, fight about whose fault it was. Um, <clears throat> actually, in, in this case, the, the, the bit that I'm um, most concerned about is that when, it, when I was just starting out in procurement as a consultant, uh, I, I met with a procurement professional, not, not from Portsmouth, who said, oh, the, the head of procurement, his, his career is buried underneath that tower. That was his actual quote, and um, and you sort of found, and I, I found myself sort of thinking, oh, that that sounds awful. And that, from in the light of today, actually, that's the worst thing that we can, that can happen is to have this sort of weird little amerta that happens between the procurement professionals. Which is now, anyone who's familiar with that story of ten years ago knows not to do this, knows not to get involved in these sort of projects. But you have to have been a procurement professional over 10 years and have been connected with local government and, and, and. There's no public display of the problems that came out of that procurement. Here's another one for a much more recent one. So um, last week the US government announced that it was going to sue um, uh, USIS, um, a provider of investigation services, what they what they do is they do security checks on individuals, and they were they were responsible for security checking Edward Snowden, and others. And um, what they what what was basically happening was that they were getting to the end of the month, and they had too many um, too many uh, uh, checks to do, and they were getting a process of just dumping them and saying, "Yeah, they're all fine," and not doing the checks properly because the incentive was so perverse in the procurement that actually all they were doing was getting paid for, for processing and, and, signing, and signing these these people off. So, um, again, you know, once it gets into the news, it goes horribly wrong and all of those sort of things happen. Actually, you know, there is a, it's a dishonest supplier and let's, let's be frank about it, that's, there's not much that procurement should, can do about dishonest suppliers in one way. However, if you've got a critical service like this, you need to manage your contract. You need to be going, okay, well, we've got increased demand. Are we sure they can do it? They keep telling us they can do it. They keep billing us as if they've 
you know, they're doing it. We really ought to check the outputs. So it's not just a one-way one way street there. So I think, I think that, again, you end up with a problem where, actually, we've got Bloomberg and, and the Internet and that to, to sort of find out what went wrong. But really, we want more structured data around what happened with that contract to allow us to understand what went wrong and to keep it. And so this is what I believe open data can do. It can create effectively a library of good and bad practice, an ongoing endless library, not this sort of little secret omerta where actually I've been in the procurement profession for 10 years and now someone can come and whisper in my ear, oh, you don't want to do that. You know, so-and-so at whichever city council, you know, had a bit of a problem about that. And it's not a problem about, oh, we wasted public money. It was like, oh, no, his career didn't go so well after he did that. You know, so, so the motivation stops. It, once it becomes public and open, we change the motivation. And I can talk about some of the issues around whether that, that's going to be uh, positive or negative later. So I want to show you a couple of things that, that Spend Network are doing. And it's not particularly to blow our own trumpet. It's more around saying, well, this is some of what's possible now. Um, and I will make an, a, a, an apology now. Some of these, um, a couple of these stories are slated for the, hopefully will go into a newspaper. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you the exact figures. And I hope you'll bear with me and I apologise for that. So this is the monitoring of tender performances. So how long it takes to complete a tender across different countries in the EU. And, uh, you know, up, up at the top, understandably, is Greece, but we're not so far behind and down here is Poland, at the bottom is Poland. And there's a big differentiation. I haven't got the exact number of days for the previous reason, but, but it, it, you know, that's quite interesting. We're not as good as we think at doing this stuff. We can also monitor single suppliers. Because of the great work that Chris is doing at Open Corporates, at building corporate groupings, we can now start to see, actually, how much money... This is just four of the, the 44 bits of capita that are receiving money from government, uh, we can start to see where the money's going across that grouping. We can start to understand, actually, there's, there's, this is where all the money's going. And because Spend Network is doing local government and central government, we're seeing spend analysis that, that no one ever saw before. There was no vision of how much money was going to capital. And we haven't even done the NHS yet. So that's only going to get bigger. And, that, and, and then can we understand what, what's, really, what's really happening with, with how we can leverage that data when we negotiate with these guys. Here's a category. So this is um, recruitment in London. Um, so <coughs> this is just the top um, six suppliers. And who knew that actually in London, temporary staff and agency staff was nearly a billion pounds a year? That's 33 organisations. You know, it, it, it is an enormous amount of money. And we've got one supplier <coughs> that's dominating, clearly dominating the market. And it's growing. And that consolidation is growing. Now, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I'm, I'm not going to make a judgment. I'm just going to say that when we get open data working right, that becomes public. And that knowledge becomes public. And, and it becomes harder for procurement professionals to sort of act in their own interests rather than acting in what is an obviously 
a, a dangerous situation potentially. If they got to 70% of the market nationally, what then happens if something goes wrong? So we, we, there are, we've got to think about these things. So we can monitor budget management. I'm afraid this, um, these orange lines haven't come out so well. So this is something we've, we've done. I don't know if anyone saw that the news that Wolverhampton looks like it might be insolvent. Anyone saw that? There's some articles in the Birmingham Evening News. Um, so what we did was we, we analysed their budgets for their, for their spend and, and had to do some estimation on what they would be paying in salary terms and then uh, and broke it down. And we sort of, our estimate was that those orange lines were the monthly budgets that they should have been keeping to. So they should have been below 12 million a month throughout um, uh, uh, 2011 and 11.65 million a month um, in 2012. I mean, they've, they've made a very public display saying that you know, the reason that they're going insolvent is to do with cuts and austerity. Um, we're saying, look, you were overspending. Now, that might be because they've got long-term contracts or they had other commitments or, or all the rest of it. I'm just saying there was a clear case. We can clearly evidence that they were spending too much at certain times. Now, whether they could have done anything about it, I don't know. I'm not saying they could. I'm just saying, look. And, and that's about holding people um, to account and saying, could you have made better decisions? Here's, um, here's another one that I haven't, I'm afraid I haven't given you all of the information, but we've got that arc of spending with, with um, SMEs. So a, small, a group of organisations, how much are they spending with SMEs? And we know that that's a critical, um, a, 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 a critical KPI for government. They want to be spending more with SMEs. Now, because of open data, we're finding out exactly how much people are spending with SMEs and where it's going and which SMEs are turning into not being SMEs as a result of government business. That's a good thing. And I think that, you know, it's, it's about saying... Actually, government, we, we, we can help you identify where your next SMEs are. And one of the things that you know, I want to uh, hopefully talk to, I'm talking to Biz about, which is around saying, well, look, if a tender goes out, could we be emailing the person who posted that tender saying, did you know that in a 100-mile radius there are six SMEs that have completed projects in this category? Can you invite them to tender? Now... There's nothing wrong with government reaching out to people and trying getting them to, to win business. Um, but the problem is, it isn't open yet. That sort of data is... It, it's so expensive for us to go through that analysis and to do the linking that's required that we can't... We have to sell it. I want that data to be open, but I can't make it open because economically there's no market. You know, it, it just doesn't, wouldn't sustain itself. And that data's limited. It's, I mean, I'm sure you're thinking, oh, that's quite interesting. But it's, only a, it's really only scratching the surface of what we should be able to do in, in, in government procurement. So when I'm, there's so much more that needs to be done to make it all public and to make, make this analysis available. So I'm going to run through just a very two brief examples of what I think we could start to do. Not, and one isn't too far away. So one of the things that we could start to do is start to under, understand net benefit. 
do a net benefit calculation based on the tax that a corporate body will pay and how much money is going to that corporate body. So if you sign a deal with a, um, <clears throat> a telecoms company and that they have an effective tax rate of 12% and their rival has an effective tax rate of 22%, well, if you're spending £400 million a year, actually, that's a big deal. And we can calculate what that might mean in terms of benefit to the Treasury. Now, George Osborne, I'm sure, will be um, delighted to think that that might happen, but it only, it's only going to work if he's actually prepared to let departments and councils and others spend that little bit more to get more tax in. So there has to be a, a meritocratic cycle here, but that we're not far away from, mainly because of the work that Chris is doing, but we're not far away from being able to achieve that sort of analysis for, for, for buyers when they go to market. I think that where we really need to go is to this, where we can monitor the burn on every contract and every budget across government. So uh, uh, this idea that I post a contract, it's for a mo uh, £10 million, and I can monitor that spending month by month and go, well, actually, they've burnt three-quarters of, of, of the budget within 18 months of a three-year three contract. They might be in trouble here. That should be public. And being able to access that and understand that, I think will have, in the long run positive effects on the procurement on the way that procurement is exercised in the country. The first thing that will happen if, if this ever happens, the first thing that will happen is everyone will put their budgets up. So they'll say, oh yeah, no, it's 100 million for that. Well actually, if you start linking that back to the actual budget, and rather than saying, oh well, the value for this contract is 100 million, you start linking it back, you're going to start saying, well look, they're overstating their contract values by 150%. And we're going to be able to start wheedling it back and making it more accurate and it soon becomes possible to actually say you're in trouble, you're getting this is not a well run procurement and to have the contract, to have the tender available to people that say okay, we need to not repeat this mistake so <coughs> this is my yeah, this is not in my lifetime probably, but this is what I think we should be getting to so that, that hierarchy where the data is actually, I have, a, I have a budget, I have projects against that budget. That might be adult social care or it might be building an aircraft carrier. I then list the projects, the tenders that come off that project, and I list the contracts that come off those tenders so that we know each time. And then when I make spending transactions, I, I also code those against the contracts. Uh, you can understand that this... If you really put your mind to it, any, any organisation in government could have a good stab at getting more than 60 or 70% of that right, I reckon, within three months. But it's, you've got to put your mind to it, and you've got to understand the, the, the benefits from achieving this. But I think that that's where we should be looking to it. That's our long-term goal for f open financial data. Um, and if we get that, we get a real library. We get that real ability to understand what happened, what went wrong, and students of the future in supply chain analysis will be going, 
well, it's the best repository of, of procurement knowledge in the world. And actually, we can understand why big projects go wrong. Because right now, you can talk about universal credit. You, I could ask everyone to say, right, raise your, raise your hands if you thought it was going to work out when they announced they, they were employing the four biggest IT providers. Yeah, exactly. We know that it's not going to work out perfectly. But why is that? Is that because of the providers or is it because of the government? We just don't have any evidence. We just don't, don't know how it works. And, and it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult engagement, to, a conversation to have, to admit failure. But you've got to, we've got to go through it. And I just want to say there is one industry that routinely puts products that are complex and difficult into the market without massive failure. And that's, the med- and, 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 and that's the healthcare industry. They put complex drugs, complex machines, complex products out into the market all the time. And the reason why they're successful at being able to do that is because they've worked out the cost of failure is so high in human terms, but also because they have a very structured process where products get approved before they go live. No one stands there and says, I'm going to have a drug for cancer in 18 months. Like, you know, we, we have ministers who, who I think are, are well-meaning, but they, 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 they will say, right, we're going to reform the benefits system in four years. It's kind of difficult. Let's, let's run some tests first. Let's, let's take an evidence-based approach to this. And, I, and actually, I, I blame Jack Kennedy for that, you know, standing there and saying... We're going to the moon. <laughs> you know, and and, and uh, don't get me wrong, I, I have no objection to big goals and impossible dreams. It's just that every politician since has stood there and said, I'm setting a time frame, we're going to the moon, on whatever it is they're responsible for. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a tired shtick, tired really. It doesn't work necessarily anymore. Um, and I, I, I just have a, one sort of, a, a really good example of this is, Unfortunately, it's Contracts Finder, the UK data, database on, on uh, contracts and tenders, which it was that classic moment, we've come to power, we're going to do something innovative and exciting, bang, out goes Contracts Finder, and it's not good enough. And everyone here who's used Contracts Finder knows it's not good enough. But it was about being seen to, to, to do more. And, and it actually has become a barrier for people like us, because... There's uncertainty about it. it. It's free but bad, so we can't compete with it. it you know, it, there, there are a whole lot of problems with that. So timing is one of the critical things. I can, we can do a lot about creating reserves of information, but if you're still going to stand up there and say, I'm going to have a new aircraft carrier in 10 minutes, there's nothing we can do. So anyway, there we go. That's, um, I'll leave it at that. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.